Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Thank you for asking. Decisions. Big decisions. Have you ever had to make a big decision in your life? If you haven't, you will. If you have, you most certainly will again. Why? Well, big decisions are just a part of life. But what makes big decisions big decisions? Well, big decisions are big decisions because they have huge implications. I mean, we're not, we're not talking about where we should go for ice cream tonight, right? We're not talking about, you know, should we go to Happy Cow or, or should we go to Jordan's? The implication of that decision is relatively low. That's a, that's a little decision. And besides, everybody knows the right answer is Happy Cow. I knew there was going to be a Jordan's or person out there hating on Happy Cow. All right, no, we're, we're not talking about that kind of decision. We're talking about big decisions. Where should I go to college? Who should I marry? Should I move across the country for this job offer or this girl? We're talking about decisions with huge implications. We're talking about big decisions. Now, this kind of begs the question, how do we make big decisions? How do we make big decisions? Well, well as good Christians, as I assume we all are, when making a big decision, we often turn to God for guidance. And that's a, that's a good thing. It's a good thing for us to turn to God for guidance. However, at times when we turn to God, it seems as though we have stumbled onto the stage of a game show. God stands before us as some sort of cosmic Bob Barker figure, and we find ourselves in the showcase showdown of our lives. Before us stands door number one, door number two, and one huge decision. Which door will we choose? If we choose the right door, Bob will celebrate with us. If we choose the wrong door, well, Bob will console with us. But the only guidance that Bob will give us is that the prize lies behind only one of the two doors. Now, now, that's a very binary, non-nuanced way of thinking, isn't it? But you know something? I am far too guilty of holding this kind of view of God in my own life. Often in my life, I have turned to God only to see myself as a contestant on his cosmic game show. Now, here's the thing. I'm sure that many of you can relate to that. I'm sure that many of you can relate to that. But, but let me ask you a question. A question I've had to ask of myself. Do you really think that God is that cruel? Do you really think that God is that cruel? Do you, do you really think it's, it's that simple 
That that's the way it works. Like, like you have this, this one chance in life to get it right. Like, like God's sitting up in heaven and he's saying, which one will it be? Will it be door number one or door number two? And after agonizing over your decision, you shout out, uh, door number one, door number one, door number one. And then God's up in heaven and he's like, let's see what's behind door number one. Oh no, you should have chosen door number two. You really think that's how it is? Like we only have this one opportunity, this one moment, this one chance in life to get it right. Is God really that cruel? Let me ask you another question, also one I have had to ask of myself. Do you really think that you are the master of your own destiny? Do you really think that you're the master of your own destiny? Do you, do, you, do you really think that you have that much influence over the course of your life? Do you really think you have that much control over the events and the outcome of your life? Well, this morning, we're going to turn our attention to Proverbs 16. And in our study there, we're going to attempt to answer these two questions. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for how much you love us. I thank you for giving us your word, which renews our hearts and our minds. And Lord, we just pray that we would bask in the light of your word this morning in your name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 16 this morning. And I want to first turn your attention to, to three similar verses found in, in chapter 16, verses 1, 9, and 33. And I'm actually going to give you just a quick second to kind of eyeball and see where those are at. Because we're going we're gonna to read them together as if there's one unit. So Proverbs 1, 9, and, uh, and 33. 1, 9, and 33. So starting in verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, I'm highlighting these three verses because they provide the philosophical framework for, for the entire chapter. While they are similar to each other, each one is also a little nuanced. Let's take a look at their similarities and their nuance a little closer. Verse 1, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. In other words, we can dream up plans in our heart, but the final word on those plans comes from the Lord. We can dream, but the Lord has final say in how our decisions turn out. Like a parent telling their child, what I say goes. God's voice carries ultimate authority 
in the affairs of our lives. His voice carries ultimate authority in the affairs of our, of our lives. He has the final word in our lives. He is the final word. Verse 9, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. In other words, we can diligently calculate our decision, but ultimately we are going to walk the, the path and take the steps that God divinely appoints us to take. We cannot deviate from our steps because he is ordaining each and every one of them. Uh, yesterday afternoon, I went out for a bike ride. And uh, as I normally do when I go out for a bike ride, before I actually go out on the ride, I, I always check the weather to see if it's going to rain. And so I said, Alexa, is it going to rain today? And Alexa responded back very politely, no, it is not going to rain today. So I loaded my car up, or so I loaded my bike onto my car, and as I was making my way over to where I was going to start riding from, I noticed these ominous clouds hanging over Laconia. And maybe a half a mile into my ride, the heavens opened up, and this torrential rain started, and it lasted for like the next 10 miles. Now, I, I did diligently calculate it, right? I did diligently calculated my decision. I checked with the available resources that I had, I, and I made my decision. I went on my ride, and I was hoping for a nice dry ride. But you know what? God had other plans. Apparently, he had some sort of point that he wanted to make to me yesterday. And so the skies opened up, and it just poured. By the way, lesson learned, I left all my wet weather gear at home. So I didn't even have the stuff I needed for the ride. Final verse, verse 33. A lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. All right, a lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now this one, this one's a little different. It, it requires a little bit more explanation. You see, it was common for ancient people to use lots, something like dice, to determine the mind of the gods, right? A good example of this is when the sailors sailing with Jonah cast lots to determine who is responsible for the brooding storm that is threatening to take their lives, right? We're all familiar with this story, right? They, they cast lots, the lots fall on Jonah, and so into the water in the belly of the whale that Jonah goes, now, these were pagan sailors, but the Jewish people also used lots. In fact, as late as the events of Acts chapter 1, the apostles used lots to determine who would be Judas's replacement. So they got a group of guys together, they cast lots, lots fell on who? Does anyone know? Extra bonus points. Mathis. Mathis. Right? So this is a way that... They would determine the will of God. So, so what do these verses reveal? Remember, I said each of these verses is similar but, but nuanced. So, so what do they collectively reveal about the Lord and how he relates to humanity? Well, we saw three things in, this, in these verses. First, 
they reveal that the Lord has the final say over the affairs of humanity. Second, they reveal that the Lord determines the steps of humanity. And third, they reveal that even the apparent chaos of the universe is subject to the divine authority of the Lord. Now, I think it's important for us at this point to to stop and to consider the term Lord. What does it actually mean, and what is the implications of it for our understanding of the nature of God? Now, God's name is almost always, as it is here, translated Lord. But in Hebrew, his name would be some that would be pronounced something like Yahweh. And Yahweh is not a, a title, it's a proper name built on the word for I am which implies that God is self-sufficient. So if you remember back to to Exodus 3, right? Moses is out in the wilderness. He encounters the presence of God in the burning bush. And God tells Moses to to go back to Egypt and to liberate his chosen people. And what does Moses ask God? He says to God, okay, who should I say is sending me? And God replied to Moses and he said, Tell them that I am, that I am, has sent you. The self-existent one. Well, here are five things that the name Yahweh implies about God. Incidentally, uh, these are not original to me. I got these from John Piper, but they're very helpful for our understanding. Number one, he never had a beginning. God never had a beginning. Nobody made God. God simply is and always was. Number two, God will never end. If he did not come into being, he cannot go out of being because he is in and of himself being. Number three, God is absolute reality. There is no reality before him. There is no reality apart from him. No space, no universe, no emptiness. Only God. Number four, God is utterly independent. He depends on nothing to bring him into being or support him or counsel him or make him what he is. He just is. And then number five, everything that is not God depends totally on God. The entire universe came into being by God and stays in being moment by moment, on God's decision to keep it in being. Now, why is this important? Why is it important for us to consider this term? Well, the world may seem to be in a a world, the world may seem to be a world of random chaos, but Yahweh is in total control. Carl Sagan was a scientist known for his catchphrase, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. Does anyone remember watching this on PBS when you were a kid? But the divine wisdom of Solomon proclaims that God is Yahweh, the self-existent one. He transcends the cosmos And he's absolutely sovereign over the affairs of men.
Now at this point, you might be sitting there and you might be wondering yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute. So, so, so you're just saying that everything's predetermined? Are you just saying that everything's out of my control? What am I, just some sort of mindless automaton? Listen, Dan, either my choices matter or they don't. Which is it? Which is it? Well, if that's you this morning, let me encourage you. Um, Listen to what the text says, not what it's not saying. Listen to what the text says, not what it's not saying. Verses 1, 9, and 33 illustrate that God is absolutely sovereign. He is absolutely sovereign. But they never imply that we are just mindless automatons. In fact, they imply the opposite. So let's do a little experiment here, a little literary experiment. Let's take each one of these statements and just flip them around. Right, so each one of these Proverbs, it has an A section and a B section. So let's just take the A section and B section. Let's just flip it around. Let's make the A section, the B section, the B section, the A section. And when we do that, I think a slightly different nuanced understanding is going to emerge. Listen to this. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. But the plans of the heart are still belong to man. The Lord establishes his steps. But the heart of a man still plans his way. Every decision is from the Lord. But man's hand casts the lot. When we consider the depth and the breadth of these verses, a beautiful paradox emerges. God is absolutely sovereign, and we are co-agents in the expression of his absolute sovereignty. God is absolutely sovereign, and we are co-agents in the expression of his absolute sovereignty. So we are co-agents. What what does that mean? Verses 1 and 9 talk about the heart of a man. Now, some of your versions might translate heart as mind. That's because the translators are, are splitting etymological hairs. The words translated heart and or mind in verses 1 and 9, they, they embody the concept of human personhood. In other words, the Hebrews understood the heart to be the sum totality of, of one's being. In other words, the essence of who we are. And our essence is grounded in our creation. We were created for one glorious purpose. One glorious purpose. We were created to reflect the Lord's glory throughout the universe. And as such, we were created in his image. We were created in his image. Okay, so what does that mean? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? But to be created in the image of God is to hold something of his nature within who we are. There is something of God's nature embedded in who we are, namely intellect, emotion, and will. God possesses intellect, emotion, and will, and because we are created in his image, we also possess intellect, emotion, and will. Each of us possesses intellect. In in other words, each one of us has the ability to to cognitively process abstract ideas. 
In other words, each one of us, we have the ability to think and to reason. We, we have the ability to process and to apply information. Each one of us possesses emotion. Each one of us has the ability to feel. We can love and we can hate. We can uh, soar to the heights in joy or, or sink to the depths in despair. And each one of us possesses will or volition. In other words, each one of us has the ability to make decisions about how we will interact with the world in which we live. Intellect, emotion, and will. These are the touchstones of God's image and has his image bearers. These are the touchstones of our humanity. If we were merely automatons, we would not be human. If we were merely automatons, we would not be human. If we were just automatons, we would be like robots on a factory floor, right? Robots have to be programmed to carry out a function. A robot does not possess necessary faculties to conceive of and build a car. It has to be programmed to do that. We, on the other hand, do have the ability to conceive and, to, uh, and build a car. Why? Why do we have that ability? Because the Lord created us as co-agents in creation. The Lord created us to create. Be fruitful and multiply. We were created to create. The Lord also created us to govern, right? To subdue the earth and to have dominion over its inhabitants. But here's the thing, if we're going to create and govern, then we have to engage the essence of who we are in the task. And all our God-imageness, our intellect, our emotion, and our will, we form plans for this life. Why? Because we are co-agents in creation. Well, this is fleshed out throughout the remainder of this chapter. Verses 16 and 21 teach us, to seek wisdom and understanding. Let me ask you a question. If we were just mindless automatons, what need would we have for wisdom and understanding? Verse 20 teaches us to be thoughtful about our decisions. If we were just mindless automatons, why would we have to think about what we're doing with our lives? Verse 23 teaches us to be thoughtful about the words we speak. Right? What did your mother always say to you? Think before you speak, right? Did you know that was biblical? Your mom was preaching to you the entire time. And finally, and I find this one most fascinating, verse 32 teaches us that we are to rule over our spirits. We are to govern ourselves. Proverbs 16 not only implies that we are not mindless automatons, Proverbs 16 assumes that we are co-agents with the Lord. But of course, this leaves us with yet another burning question. If we're co-agents with the Lord, then why do we sometimes feel like we have stumbled onto the set of a game show? Why do we feel so misinformed and out of control in the events of life? You know, we're just at their 
their mercy. Why is it like that? This past week's epistle, I pointed out that the events currently unfolding in Afghanistan are a painful reminder that all is not right in the world. Now, I also pointed out that we, of course, already knew this, right? right? We can examine our own experiences and see the evidence of a world that is terribly off kilter. Our plans don't play out the way we plan them, and life seems to be in a state of chaos that is well beyond our ability to repair. Our terribly off-kiltered world is self-evident, but why? Well, if we were created to be co-agents in creation, what went wrong? To answer that question, we actually we need to go back to the dawn of creation. So as the fall was unfolding, the serpent persuaded Eve to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, saying to her, you know, God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes are going to be opened. And when they are, you're going to be like God. You're going to be like God. Now, the implication, the implication of this enticement is, is obvious, right? If I am like God, well, then I don't need God. If I'm like God, I don't need God. Why is our world so terribly off-kiltered? Well, by heeding the word of the serpent and partaking of the forbidden fruit, humanity declared independence from the Creator. And the image that we bear fractured. Why is the world terribly off-kiltered? Because it is a fractured world filled with fractured images. Fractured images who used the image they were endowed with, the image of God, in a bid to usurp the power of God and declare themselves independent from God. There's a whole lot of information in that statement. Fractured images who used the image they were endowed with, the image of God, in a bid to usurp the power of God and declare themselves independent from God. Now, if you haven't figured it out by now, this is a nonsensical, idolatrous grab for power. I say it's nonsensical because we were endowed with the image of God to glorify God. How can we then use that image to do anything else? It is nonsensical. It is the epitome of what Proverbs calls foolishness. Actually, verse 5 kind of points this out. Look at verse 5. It says, Everyone who is proud in his heart is an abomination to the Lord. Now, abomination is a word that often carries the connotation of idolatry. It's often linked to idolatry. The world is filled with 7 billion people, 7 billion images created to reflect the glory of the Creator throughout the cosmos. But the proud in heart are an abomination because they have rejected their intended purpose, and in doing so, they have become 
objects of idolatry. Verse 18 follows the nonsensical grab for power to its natural conclusion. This is a verse I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. It is our pride that leads us astray. It is our pride that leads to decimation in this life. So what are the implications of pride for the the big decisions in our lives? Well, Apostle James touches on this. And actually, this is worth looking at. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to flip over. Keep a finger in Proverbs 16 because we're going to stay there. But flip over to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. So James chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and, and trade and make a profit. And you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you're boasting, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, James says, don't pridefully make plans with no regard for the sovereignty of God. Don't blow God off and just make your plans and think you're going to keep them. As Proverbs proclaims, it will only lead to destruction. Now, instead... James encourages us to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or we will do that. Now, what's really cool about this is that's the exact same conclusion that Proverbs comes to. The exact same encouragement that we are given in Proverbs. In Proverbs 16, verse 3, it says, commit your work to the Lord Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Now, the word commit literally means to roll over onto. And and the idea is this. As we commit our work, our deeds, what we do with our hands and our feet, our will to, to, to the Lord, our plans will begin to look more and more like the Lord's plans. When we commit our work, when we roll ourselves over onto God, when we unconditionally trust Him with all the plans for our lives, we will regain a sense of our co-agency with Him, and we will operate as we were intended to. When we commit our work to the Lord, when we say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, then He will establish our plans. Then He will establish our steps. So, not many of you might know this, but a very close confidant of mine is Carol Boudreau. And I spend a fair amount of time sitting out uh, with Carol on her porch, and we just discuss 
all sorts of spiritual matters and matters of life. And many times when I am stumped when I'm preparing for a sermon, because this does not all come naturally, you have to work for it. And uh, sometimes when I'm stumped, I will, I will go over and I will sit out on the porch with Carol. And uh, I was very stumped this week. I mean, I was doing my due diligence. I was putting my study in. I was, I was trying to really understand the passage and get my head wrapped around it. But, but for whatever reason, the Lord just was not giving me much direction on what to actually say. I did my study, but, but I, wasn't, I wasn't getting a direction. And so out of kind of frustration, I, I went over to Carol and I hung out with her for a little bit, and I explained all this to her, and I said, you know, I just have this weird sorts of, sort of unsettled peace about this. And I said to Carol, I said, here's the thing about this whole thing. I can't even be angry about it because the passage won't let me be angry about it, right? Because this passage is all about our plans and the sovereignty of God. I'm making my plans, I'm doing the work, but nothing's coming to fruition. And all I can do is sit back and trust God. And you know what Carol said to me? She said to me, go back to your office, get your butt in your seat, and get back to work. Now, she didn't say that. She will say that if she thinks I need to kick in the butt, but she didn't say that. She said something to me that she always says to me. She said, trust and abide. Trust and abide. That's what it means to commit your plans to the Lord to roll over on him with full, putting your full trust upon him with all the works of your hands. That's what it means. And he'll work and bring them to fruition as he sees fit. When we commit our work to the Lord, when we say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that, then he will establish our plans, then he will establish our steps. The image of the cosmic Bob Barker will fracture and the true radiance of our loving, benevolent creator will shine through. Door number one and door number two will dissolve before us and he himself will be the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. The light, will, the light that will guide us through every big decision that we will ever make. So doubling back to, to where we started, coming back to the, the questions that we started with, is God really that cruel? Is he really this cosmic Bob Barker figure? Is he really that cruel? No. As he says to us through the prophet Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. He is not that cruel. And to our second question, are we the masters of our own destiny? Can we control all the outcomes of our lives? Every facet and detail of it? Again, the answer is no. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. 
but the plans of the heart still belong to man. The Lord establishes his steps, but the heart of man still plans his way. Every decision is from the Lord, but man's hand still casts a lot. God is absolutely sovereign, and we are co-agents in the expression of his absolute sovereignty. Does this make sense? I want to leave you with this. Not only is God not a cosmic bar barker figure, we have a crystal clear picture of him in Jesus Christ. This is pretty cool. This is Colossians chapter 1. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the transcendent view of God that we've been talking about this entire time. But in Jesus Christ, the face of God is revealed. And we see that in Jesus, God is not just transcendent. He's also imminent. Colossians goes on and says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Our God is not a cosmic Bob Barker. He is a suffering servant who came and walked this earth, who suffered everything that we could suffer and more, and he walks through this life with us. I love this morning that the, the worship team sang all these Christocentric songs. You can never go wrong singing about Christ because he really is the true focus of all of this. So if we really want to know what, what God's will is for our life, if we, if we really want to make good decisions, the best thing that we can do is look to Christ and surrender to Him. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I do thank you so much for how much you love us and all our imperfections and, and all our fracturedness. You are so good to us. And Lord, I love that we can celebrate that you are just in the process of restoring us and making us whole and complete in you. Lord, I just pray that this week you would just fill us with a sense of your presence in our lives. As we consider the decisions that, that are to be made, uh, even the ones of little consequence, especially the ones of big consequence, Lord, I just pray that we would have a sense of your presence, a sense that you can be trusted, a sense that you are sovereign, and a sense that we can act and move within your sovereignty. I ask all this in your name. Amen.